Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Can I tell you, can I tell you just an off-the-topic story before we begin that's kind of interesting and maybe other screen readers will find it interesting? Yeah, we're recording, so I sold it's really juicy. We'll use it. Yeah, and it's not that juicy. It's really geeky. But um, I wrote a screenplay and I sold it when I was really excited. And when I started doing rewrites to the company, um, I had this really big deadline deal. It was a really big, it was the first really big sale that I had, a really big sale. And I did the notes and I sent them in. And that Monday I got a call that says, hey, you're two days late. We just want to check in with you. And I said, no, I sent it. And they said, we didn't get it. And I said, no, I, I sent it. And I showed my sent inbox and they said, well, we don't have it. Can you send it again? So I sent it again. I get a call that night and they said, hey man, there's something wrong. We're not getting it. So I said, well, can I text it to you? And I put it on a text thread. I hit it and they said, it's not coming through. We don't know what's going on. There was a bug in Final Draft that a certain series of words together blocked it from all mail servers sending it out. What? Uh, yeah. And so the word was, it was, it was about roller derby. It was like jewels sped down the roller derby, whatever it was. So it was an impossibility for me to get the script off the computer sent anywhere. And so I was on the phone with, with first Mac and Apple and then, and then the email service and eventually final draft. And they finally tracked it down. They said, we want you to try to send half the script and half the script went and then the other half wouldn't go. So I had to go page by page and then found the section of words that would not allow it to be sent. And when I removed those section of words, it would send over. And it was five words together in unison. And eventually we just had to remove those five words that would, it would send. And it was like a nothing, it was like a nothing sentence, but it was being blocked from going across the internet. That's really weird. How did they, did they fix that bug? I don't know. Um, we eventually, I just rewrote it. I rewrote those. Once we figured out what the words were, I just rewrote that, that string of words and it was sending fine. But that could, was you, could you have printed it and sent by mail? Yeah, I could have, but. Uh, <laughs> Post office wouldn't deliver it. Yeah. <laughs> were three of those words Klatu, Barada, Niktu? No, they were not. They were not. Okay. Oh, I want to apologize in advance, Darren. We're, we're, uh, we have no water here for a couple more hours, so I look like an insane mess. I think you look, be- I think you look beautiful. Uh, oh, thank you. Uh, the listeners can't tell that, you know. Uh, yeah, I, I know, but he's got, he's got to look at me. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, uh, that's actually kind of funny. Do you mind if we use that in the... Um... Please. Okay, I guess, you know, oh, final draft may now revoke your... Um... I know. <laughs> they fixed it. Wait, Final draft 11. They did fix it. I love that. I've I've always wondered, like, yeah, are there like weird little glitches in any of those programs that just some odd one? Yeah. yeah, that's that's pretty funny. Uh well, Darren, thanks for uh thanks for joining us. So who's our guest today, by the way? Um, we never say. We're not saying anymore. I'm not gonna do that. Um this ongoing thing, Darren, where it's like anybody anybody who's listening to this knows who it is because you can't get here without clicking on a thing that tells you who's on the show. Yes. This is The Movies That Made Me with your hosts, Josh Olson and Joe Dante.
but you might want to familiarize a few people no, with Darren. Not even remotely. Not no. even remotely. Let's just. I'm this not the man who made it. This is the man who I'm made gonna... Repo: The Genetic Opera. There you that go. Correct. My my niece's favorite movie. Do you know how much she watched that movie more times than The Little Mermaid? Uh, that makes me very happy. Wow. <laughs> I showed um, my son who's five the first time I showed him a couple of scenes from it last week. He was not impressed. He was not a fan. <laughs> uh, uh, really? That's, that's no. well, maybe you have to be a teenage girl 10 years ago. I think you have to be a god. <laughs> you have to be a huge. Well, it's easily the best. Can I say this? It's easily the best thing uh, Paris Hilton's ever done. Well, I, I agree. I think uh, that was such a crazy she was such a crazy experience because she, and I hope I'm going to get in trouble for saying this. I'm sure that Ooh, then we're going to use it. Okay. Uh, <laughs> you recording. Cause this is about to be some juicy. Music. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, she, Pop it, it's a, it's an act. Like she is so smart and articulate and the, the Paris Hilton that, that I guess I thought I knew is not the Paris Hilton who actually is. Now I remember it's one we were recording the album and um, she, I one day I came in and I was like, where the fuck is Paris? Thinking that she was late or something. And the, the engineer just pointed down and she was lying on the ground in the sound booth and I couldn't see her. And she had all these law books opened up and she was being sued by something. I don't know what it was. And I walk in there and her voice was lower and she was articulate. And, and I, I said, what are you doing? She's like, I'm, I'm being sued and I'm trying to figure out something. And I had this like in-depth conversation with her and she was using words that I didn't even understand what the fuck they meant. And at the very end, I said, I said, wow, this, this Paris is not who I thought was, was, I didn't know this Paris. And she goes, Hey, if playing the dumb ditzy blonde gets me paid, then that's the role I'll take on. And she was awesome. Like she was on time. She was, she was articulate. She knew her lines. Uh, so yeah, it was, a, it was, I was kind of shocked by how she actually was, was, Great. The I read last week that she has decided to um, sort of retire that version of herself. Uh, the dizzy blonde or the smart one? The dizzy blonde. Okay. <laughs> and and just go on and 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 be a regular person and not do that character. It's like like being Elvira or Angeline, you know. Right. Yeah, <laughs> it's well, she's looking perfectly clear for me to uh, own <laughs> that space. Angeline driving around. I still see her on Sunset driving. Yes, around. absolutely, absolutely. Uh, I think Friedkin's still our uh, our biggest newsmaker. Still, sadly, uh, he went he went off on Exorcist two a while back and got us some nice press. Oh really? Uh, I'll uh, drop some bombs in here. That'll yeah, uh, that'll be good. Okay. Uh, oh my god! By the way, somebody a friend of mine sent me a little cartoon of um, a guy coming into the past with a time machine and confronting William Friedkin and saying, "Don't open Sorcerer against Star Wars." And <laughs> Friedkin goes, "Fuck you! What do you know? Sorcerer's going to destroy that bullshit." You go. That's probably what would have happened. Um, but anyway, Joe, nice, nice of you to mention um, uh, Darren, Darren's musical because um, he is going to actually, uh, being the king of horror that he is, in fact, with, with a new horror film, yes, Death of Me, yes, uh, which, which opens when, Darren? Uh, October 2nd. October 2nd. Yes. Um, it's, a, it's a terrific film. It's, um, uh, it's one of those things that... I don't want to chase viewers away, but I sort of regret watching now because sitting here in month 43 of uh, pandemic, it, um, it really made me want to be somewhere else. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, uh, where is it set? Where did you guys shoot it? Oh, we shot it in Thailand. Oh, it's um, a, that's right, Thailand. 
Yeah. Um, beautiful, beautiful locations. And um, yeah, we shot yeah. Hanmet and Krabi, which is basically where they shot the beach, Leonardo DiCaprio film. Um, yeah. And uh, the other half in Bangkok. And uh, it was uh, it was an experience. That's for that's for sure. Yeah, and except for what's happening to the characters, it really made me hate my life. So thanks. Uh, yeah. Um, but uh, yes, but Darren Darren is here to talk about um, as as the king of horror that he is. Uh, his favorite musicals. Song and dance. That's yes. What, uh, I grew up on. Uh, <laughs> we um, uh, recurring theme lately. Weirdly. I uh, it's you know it's crazy is that yeah I make these bloody. Uh, Films, but if you walk into my house outside of this room, the room that I'm in, um, it's, it's got some horror stuff in it. But you know, it's musical poster theaters and white picket fences and dogs and you know, very light and cheery. It's only this office which is kind of dark and nefarious. But yeah, it's um, you know, you know, I'll start with with I, people always ask me like, what is that movie that like made me want to be a director? And the movie that I always say is the weirdest one in the world because. It's so anti the type of movies that I make, which is, and I have a funny story about my house. So I'm going to come back to the movie, but the, the, the movie is Jesus Christ Superstar. Jesus! You've started to believe the things they say of you, you really do believe this talk of God is true. Yet, if he said he loved me, I'd be lost, I'd be frightened. I couldn't cope, just couldn't cope. You know, the, the 1973 film with Ted Neely, I have been a fan of that movie since a kid, and it kind of is is a lot to do with my family and my family. There was a thing called Theater in the Park when I was a kid, and it was a thing that I always look forward to. And, and it was like a, a theater show would come to town, and you'd go sit outside and have a picnic, and you would watch the show. And I saw a touring production of Jesus Christ Superstar with Ted Neely, uh, who is the original Jesus in the movie, uh, in this touring company. And so I remember going with my family, and I loved it. And uh, I was like, it was just such a great experience because I was there with my mom and my dad and, and my sister. And it was just this great memory and moment. Um, throughout my childhood, uh, I got really involved into acting and theater. And the first big show that I was ever cast in was Jesus Christ Superstar. Um, and so... What, what uh, art? Uh, nothing. I was a background. I was a background nothing. Oh, okay. But I was still, I was a freshman in high school, but it was still my... It was like, a, and that, that experience of making that movie is where I realized I wanted to be a director or making that play because I, you know, you're the, the thrill that you get when the lights go down and the orchestra tunes up and you, you hear the audience kind of murmuring and the nerves you get. I realized that I loved it so much. And it wasn't that I loved being in the show. It was, I loved being a part of the production. Okay. So, uh, throughout, throughout the last like, I don't know, 20 years, every time I see a Jesus Christ superstar poster, I buy it. And I put it on my wall. And so I have all these weird Jesus Christ Superstar posters on my wall. Cut to a few years ago, Ted Neely, who plays Jesus, came to my house for dinner. And he walks in and he sees all these Jesus Christ Superstar posters. And I had to look like a serial killer. <laughs> <laughs> it was like everywhere. 
And uh, he goes, he, he, he sees them, he doesn't acknowledge them. He looks at them and he doesn't acknowledge them. Yeah. And he's like, uh, hey, Darren, you know, I really got to use the restroom. And I said, oh, yeah, there's just go to the guest house. There's one right there. And I totally forgot that hanging above the urinal is his face and a Jesus Christ superstar thing. And so he walks out and he sees it and he walks back in. He's like, so uh, I guess you are a fan. And like, I, it, was, it was just an awkward, um, fun thing of Ted Neely realizing I'm psychotic. <laughs> I, 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 I was waiting for you to say, he came back and said, you know, my bathroom has the same poster in the same place. But it's a me. It's a me. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, he has a Darren Postman poster over his toilet. I think it's one of my favorite things about my career is that um, I, I work, I've been able through the musical films that I've done to work with these people that I grew up just completely admiring. And so, you know, one of the first movies that had an effect on me um, that I watched in repetitively over and over and over again was Jesus Christ Superstar. And it starred, you know, Ted Neely and Carl Anderson and Barry Dennen. Um, so when I, when I first started making movies, I, it was funny, I had this huge appreciation for this actor, Carl Anderson, who plays Judas in the film. And um, I tried to reach out to get him in the movie and he had just passed, he, he had died. And so um, I, I wasn't able to do that. And in fact, I actually want to think it was one of the Saw movies that I wanted him to be in um, as this, this role and found out that he died. And so um, the next thing I did, I went right down the list and I said, I want to work with Ted Neely and Barry Dennen. And cut to a few years later, I worked with both Ted Neely and Barry Dennen mm. uh, from Jesus Christ Superstar, uh, which, which again, still today, I probably watch once a month. And what, how, um, how old were you, do you think, the first time you saw it? The movie, um, you know, we watched it every Easter Sunday, I think, when I was, uh, when I was a kid. So I must have seen that movie a hundred times. Uh, and that kind of led me into other weird musicals. And I want to say that I am not a fan of all musicals. Um, uh, and I have a, a funny, uh, I have a, maybe an interesting story, but um, I could not watch Oklahoma if you paid me. I just don't, I don't respond to that type of stuff. I, I respond to big flamboyant, over the top, crazy movie musicals. Um, and I don't even like, there's a lot of times that I'll watch a movie musical and then I'll hate the stage production musical of it. Um, so, but a, a funny story is I was casting, um, I was casting a movie and uh, I got a hold of Tom Waits's cell phone number. And I blind called him. I had no setup. I just called the number to see if Tom Waits would answer the phone. And he did answer the phone. And uh, I was trying to pitch him to be in one of my musicals. And, and what proceeded was a 90-minute conversation with Tom Waits on the phone about pennies from heaven. And uh, it was so crazy because I, I'm, I'm, I'm realizing that I blind called Tom Waits. And I'm talking to this guy who I'm a huge Tom Waits fan, both as an actor as well as a musician. And he's talking to me about pennies from heaven, which I had never seen at that point. And, and uh, I, I said, you know, I, I, I'm going to go watch that movie. And he goes, you know, go watch that movie and call me back. And, uh, you know, I, I watched pennies from heaven. And, and while I respected absolutely the movie pennies from heaven, I was not a fan of the music of it. And so I realized then that I have such a weird, obscure taste of movie musicals and the ones that I actually respond to versus the ones that I just don't. And some of the more popular movie musicals that, probably are probably the, the, the main ones I just don't respond to at all. Yeah, no, I, I kind of get that. Um, it's funny. One, one of the great, just as a side, one of the great heartbreaks in my creative life is that uh, Tom, Tom Waits was originally supposed to play the, uh, uh, the older killer in the beginning of History of Violence and then had to bow out because he was on tour. And, I mean, we got Stephen McCaddy, who's absolutely fucking amazing in the film, but... Uh, but he ain't Tom Waits. Yeah, just like <laughs> I was, I was so psyched to go hang out on that set. 
uh, I had a thing when I was when I was first starting out of film school, leaving film school, and I, I did it three or four times. And now again, that whole idea about me being psychotic, uh, maybe maybe it's going to come back. That uh, I realized that filmmakers are just people too, and so I tried to just call them. And this is before I made a movie, but uh, so I would I would reach out and try to find their phone numbers. And I actually think I talked about one of them on Trailers from Hell that I did when I, I think I did the um, trailer on uh, Requiem for a Dream, which is one of my all time favorite. Mm-hmm. But uh, I got a hold of Darren Aronofsky's phone number from his grandmother. Uh, I, I called an Aronofsky in the phone book, hoping that I would get Darren. And I got, his, I guess, his, I think she said it was his grandmother. And I said, you know, is Darren there? And she says, no, Darren doesn't live here. How'd you get this number? And I said, oh, I'm sorry. I was doing an interview with them and the phone just cut off. And she goes, oh, well, let me give you a cell phone number. Uh, so uh, I, I called Darren Aronofsky. And he was shooting, uh, he had just shot Pi and he was shooting Requiem for a Dream. And he ended up talking to me for about an hour as well. So uh, I started just doing that. I started randomly calling people that I had huge uh, admirations for until I got a hold of David Lynch and I got screamed at. And uh, how'd you get this number? Don't you ever call this number again? And so I decided to stop the idea of blindly calling directors that I was fans of and trying to ask. I'm amazed it took that long. Uh, yeah, it was the David Lynch did not, did not go well. <laughs> wow. Um, <laughs> so, uh, what's another, uh, yeah, another one that you uh, like as opposed to other people liking it? <laughs> so, you know, so the ones that, okay, so there's the obvious ones that I am, I am huge fans of, and I think you can see the inspiration on my career and my weird kind of off the wall musicals is, but, but obviously Rocky Horror Picture Show. You've seen all kinds of movies, but you've never seen anything like the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Let's do the time warp again. Let's do the time warp again. The Rocky Horror Picture Show is wonderfully weird. They're probably foreigners with ways different than our own. It's fabulously freaky. It's a trip to transsexual Transylvania. The Rocky Horror Picture Show. For me, again, coming at it from a different thing of, of forgetting the film for one second and talking about the experience of watching the movie in a theater. Um, and that's what kind of, kind of, I think, fork, it put a fork in the road in my career where I realized that there's something about creating movies for an audience as opposed to just being a passive experience. And when I saw Rocky the first time, I saw it in a theater. I didn't watch it in, on a VHS. I didn't anything like that. It was, it was actually at a theater in high school. Um, there was this, you know, really great fine arts theater that, that you know, had a, had a video store in the front of it and a movie theater in the back. And every, every Friday night they did, uh, uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show Shadowcast. But I remember sitting there the first time and, and watching, uh, you know, watching it with this audience and watching Tim Curry appear on screen for the first time and people dressed up and singing and screaming. And I realized I was part of something subversive and cool and, and just different. And it was so exciting to me because it also turned the movie experience into a religious thing. It made going to a movie theater something that you would never have had that experience with Rocky Horror if you saw it on VHS for the first time. I, I think if I thought VHS... Yes, I, I can't imagine... Oh, it's, it's an interactive movie. It's so it impossible is. to explain to people who have, you know, seen it on video. It's like, it, that's 
It, exactly. And so for it can't me, be recreated. It can't be recreated. So I saw Rocky lot, you know, I was probably 14, something like that. And so it was a little, it was a little older than some of the other movies that I saw, but it, it affected me in such a way that it kept me going back to the movies. And I realized that how um, ritualistic seeing a movie can be and how religious of a cleansing kind of experience, because I remember that I could be in a bad mood and upset or depressed. And I go to that, I go to that screening and just watch the insanity going on around me. Um, that it, it just, it, it, it was, it was something that I never experienced before out of a movie. Um, and so, again, that was one of the first major things in my life that kind of shifted me into saying, how can I take that experience of Rocky Horror into the work that I do? But the reality is, is if I go make a movie like Spiral and say to Lionsgate, hey, I want to I make this audience interactive, they would have fired me. So <laughs> it's very hard to get someone to actually allow you to, to, to do something like that. But, you know, Lionsgate eventually came around, Repo. And they said, okay, you can, you can try it. Um, and the idea of Repo was that. It was that I wanted to, to do what Rocky Horror Picture Show did for me when I, was a, when I was a teenager in Kansas, which was to create an environment of insanity in the audience and, and watch a movie with like-minded weirdos where you can scream and, and act a fool while watching a movie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we, we used to get that uh, response from the movie orgy which yeah. is um, something that can really only be appreciated with an audience and doesn't work by itself if you just watch it. It's like, yeah, it's okay, it's interesting, but when there's a whole lot of people watching it and they're all laughing at the same time and all laughing at different things, you, it's just, you're, you become part of a movement. Yeah, it is. And I think that there's, there's, and that's what's so hard right now about this pandemic and, and COVID-19 is that yes, that some theaters are open back up, but there is, a, there is something that is undefinable about when you're in a theater full of packed, like-minded weirdos, um, much like the scene in The Gremlins where they're all in there in, in the movie theater. You can just act a fool. Uh, mm-hmm. there's, there's something great about that and um, a feeling of belonging. And I think that, that uh, those type of films, whether it be a movie like Rocky Horror Picture Show or even The Room, which The Room is a terrible film, but... You go there and... It's a, but it's a bonding experience. It is. So it's a wonderful crazy. bonding experience. You should also say, for all of Joe's bad mathing, we are going to be attempting something with the movie Orgy next month that uh, hopes, oh. to, hopes to bring people in this COVID era together a little bit. But that's that's all I'm going to say, and it may fail spectacularly. Probably <laughs> will. Got to try. It won't. It's wonderful. I, um, I'm also... I live in just mortal fear of someday somebody may have a photograph of me as Rocky at the TLA oh, in Philadelphia when I'm like 19 or something. Oh, I will, I will go digging because I know all the Rocky Park communities and uh, I will go into the archives and I will pull that this out. Is, this is a long time ago. And it's just like, I don't, even know, I don't even know if anybody had a camera, but it's one of those things you're like, Oh God, you know, three o'clock in the morning when you're, your brain is finding something to torture you about. It's like, what if somebody had a camera that night? I mean, I got to say this, that, that I remember again, I think it was Rocky Horror was the first time I saw a real pair of boobs um, because you, you, know, you, you, the, no, I take that back, hair. Well, again, this, I wasn't even meaning to bring up hair in the musical movie, but that, that was the first time I saw a pair of boobs when there's oh, very, hair's, hair's not on your list? Uh, it is, it is, but oh, okay. I'll jump to here. Let the sun shine in.
caught in the trees Give a home to the fleas in my hair A home for fleas, a hive for the buzzing bees Nest for birds, there ain't no words for the beauty, the thunder, the wonder of my hair is nowhere near my favorite movie or musical but what i did love about the hair movie i was never a fan of the hair musical and if you watch the musical and then you watch the movie they're totally different they, oh god no the the, the 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 theatrical experience is i think it's one of those things that you had to be there in the moment because well, it's it's not good it is not good and, well um, it's it it wasn't and i i've i've seen here a couple of times in the theater and i just wasn't a fan but then i saw the movie and I don't know. I don't. It, it it spoke to me. I loved it, and it was also flamboyant and over the top and weird and crazy. And and again, it goes to the ideas of the musicals that I respond to are the ones of the escapism, where it's taking reality and pushing it past. So in Hair, yes, you have some serious moments, but then it goes into this just crazy with the crazy makeup and the costumes and just the absurdity, which I I find myself responding to. Um, and I'm going to get a bad one out of the way because I don't in any way like this movie, but it was one of the movies that I find myself, I guess, like a train wreck going back to again and again and again, just from the balls, the flamboyant nature of it, the colors, and the risk that it took to make, which was the apple. In 1994, the world is controlled by one power. is success. There ain't no pride. There ain't no shame. There ain't no sympathy. There ain't no blame. There ain't no pleasure. One of, one of Josh's one of Josh's favorites. My so is hair. I want to give both of these or do. Let's 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 stick with hair for a minute before we uh, well first I want to personalize Apple for a second. So I my next movie that I'm filming is uh with Yuan Globus who ran Canon for, for oh, your God. Years. Who made who made Apple? And I was having dinner, and I I just I was like, how did this movie get greenlit? Like, what in what world were you like this? This is the one. Well, I'm pretty uh, sure that Menachem directing it had a lot to do with that. Well, and to go from doing Chuck Norris movies into doing you know these action films to go in and do a pseudo religious film of just the most absurd kind. Like here's this massive action guy that's coming in to do one of the most absurd musicals that I've ever seen. Um, no, I think, I think the Apple to me is one of those movies that I don't know if I was high when I watched it the first time, but I know that I didn't believe what I saw, I saw, so I had to watch it again. Yeah. I don't think I can even say I was entertained, but I had to watch it again and again and again, just because I was like, this, this isn't real. There's, there's something that I'm missing. And, um, I'm still not sure I figured out what it is that I'm missing about the Apple, but I've probably seen it 10 times. Just, uh, it, it's, it's ridiculous. It's, it's, maybe, uh, maybe they couldn't get Ken Russell. <laughs> uh, no, I, I think, I think that's probably, I think that's probably it. Uh, that would have been a, that would have been a fantastic, uh, I would love to see his version of the movie. It might have been, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I think the Apple is a, a perfect thing, I think, to, uh, to bring in a, 
gifted filmmaker to make it would have would have disrupted it. Yeah, yeah. I, um, I show it. I make a point of showing it to um, a group every year, and always try to make sure there's some new people there. I got to um, I got to show it once at the New Beverly, which was a blast. I had to pair it with something, so we showed Sergeant Pepper as well, which is fun. But it's no how apple many walkouts. How many walkouts did you get during the apple? During the apple, none. Um, I mean, the apple's just, you can't believe what you're saying. And then we, a couple of months ago, we did a thing through Trailers from Hell where we, uh, we screened it and then had a bunch of um, uh, comedy podcast folks watching it, some of whom had never seen it before. You can see it, it's still up online and they're kind of, their minds are being blown in real time. Um, it's an unbelievable, unbelievable film. Well, I try to show it to my wife just because when I find something that is so just batshit insane, I'm like, you got to watch it. I think she lasted 45 seconds and there was an actual, no. it was like she was hurt that I wasted 45 seconds of her time. Well, wait, did you just watch it? Just the two of you? Yeah. And that's, again, it's one of those movies that you need yeah, to watch. Can't be done. Yeah, you got to pack the house. Yeah. yeah. But the can- when the Gannon logo came on, you should have left. Uh, I will, if we're ever through this, Darren, uh, I'll, I'll make sure that you guys come to, uh, to see it on the big screen here with, with a group of people and, and much beer because you can't uh, sit in a room. It's like watching the room with two people. It's, you can't, yeah, you can't, yeah. Uh, you can't do that. Yeah, um, you can't, you can't possibly do that. Uh, so that, that, that's one that again, I don't know why that I keep going back to, but I will put, you know what I, you know what I also do? And there's a, there's a composer named Joe Bishara that if you ever go to his house or his parties, he always has really awesome stuff playing on a big screen TV, muted out. Um, so Apple is one of those movies that is always on in my office, muted out. So if I have meetings or something, you'll just see people's eyes drift off me. And you'll, see, uh, you'll see people just look over. And the thing, again, it, it, it's almost as ridiculous when you try to talk about it. And I, I, I actually just like talking about it because what was the villain's name? Mr. Boogaloo? Like it Mr. was Boogaloo, yeah. It's just like you're like you're trying to explain it to them and trying to explain the premise of the apple is as ludicrous. Yes, probably some of the worst acting. Um, the guy and I forget his name. The the main guy who's the only movie he ever did. Only film he ever did. Yeah, yeah. And it, yeah. It, it is literally like watching a piece of paper or cardboard try to act. It is. Uh, <laughs> but then you, you also look at it from a genre perspective, and you look at our lead actress with the girl from uh, was Mary Catherine Stewart. Yeah, she's so, great. So you've got, you got some genre credibility in there. So it's a pure mishmash of what the fuck. And those, those were, I was going to say, why, why I think musicals kind of inspired me the most is never has there been a genre of, and it was all, and I'm talking about from, from 1970 to about 1982, that yeah. era of musicals that are complete batshit crazy what the fuck. And so yeah. Ken Russell, go to, go to Tommy and you're watching Tommy and I'm not sure, again, that, that is one that is one of my favorite musicals. I, I love the music. I love the art direction. I love the acting. We are proud to announce a truly outstanding rock opera film, Tommy. Child, 
but you look at it and there's, there's never a moment that I'm not, I, this is maybe bad as a parent. I, I show my son movies that I should not show him. I get that. I understand that, that I'm, I'm showing my son stuff he should not see. He's seen Gremlins. He saw Gremlins before. Um, maybe that's not okay. I don't, I don't know, but I, I did show him Tommy. And I, I remember, I, I put a tweet out about this. Um, that there, was, there was a moment in Tommy that Anne margaret is in this completely white room and she does this song in beans. Just yeah, big beans. Yeah, and, and, yes. and Henry goes, he stands up and he goes, are those beans? And my son goes, <laughs> and I said, those are beans. And he goes, why is she slathering herself with beans? This is not okay. And then he goes, <laughs> and, and Laura comes inside my wife and she goes she goes henry's talking about beans and a woman and she sees it and she goes this is not okay for a fiber um, <laughs> but what's i don't see anything wrong there no but i, I don't either um, <laughs> but to me tommy is the perfect embodiment of why i like those type of movies because they it's absurd it's absurd the costumes the the production design um it just all of the, the symbolism in it but with the music that is so good and so catchy that it speaks to it, it to me as a filmmaker. It speaks to me on so many other levels than just a narrative piece because I'm responding to the production design, I'm responding to the acting, I'm responding to the music, um, and it, it's hitting me from all quadrants as a as a narrative filmmaker, and I love it. So definitely, Ken Russell's Tommy to me is is probably one of the greatest movie musicals ever made in my mind, uh, with rewatch value wise. I, I just love it. Interesting. Interesting. For some reason, Tommy never clicked with me. I'm a. Uh, uh, did, did you see it when it was new? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In quadraphonic sound. I, I, I assume pretty, yeah. it's pretty unforgettable. In quadraphonic sound, it's definitely sound. unforgettable. Um, I don't know. I'm also like I'm. I'm very hit or miss with the Who. There are uh, there are things. There are songs and albums that just leave me completely cold. And other stuff like I mean, Quadrophenia is one of my favorite movies. On the other hand, um, which I just absolutely not not really a musical. I understand, but. Um, um, Speaking of Ken Russell, I got to say one of my, and this is a little off topic, but uh, one of my favorite Hollywood memories, and, and I, I, don't, I don't know if any of you, you guys were there, but Ken Russell, there was a Masters of Horror dinner and Ken Russell came to it and I was, happened to be sitting right next to him and my, my jaw is completely gaped the entire time. I can't, I, I'm bumbling trying to say words. And um, he, he then went and did a Q&A where there was a double bill between Altered State and the Devils. Mm. And uh, Nick Garris hosted the, <laughs> the Q&A in between. And I have never had more respect for a person than I did Ken Russell in his Q&A, where he was shooting down the audience. He was yelling at them. And he was terrifying, where, like, he would just literally yell about, that's the dumbest fucking question I've ever heard in my entire life. I'm not answering that next question. And you would see Nick kind of like, I, he didn't know how to react, like, laugh. Or, or quickly move on. But that, that, that sitting in the audience, watching Ken Russell do a Q&A was one of the best experiences just to, just to be there in that room. Because you didn't know if you wanted to laugh or if it was serious, it was great. I don't know if you know was there doing that. Still and I, I missed that screening, I remember though. And um, um, I am sorry, that, that just makes me love him all the more. That's wonderful. You gotta I, love a cantankerous antagonist. Well, he was it was partly cantankerous because he had imbibed a lot of wine at the, uh, <laughs> the uh, Masters of Horror dinner. So, which was as as was his wont. You know, I did a picture with him. And, uh, his it was a multi-story thing, and um, he uh, he would he would be sloshed pretty early in the morning. You know, and and then they built this big set for him, and then he proceeded to shoot only close-ups on it. 
Wait, sorry. What? What's the? What's the? Dropped ashes. You what? Dropped ashes. I've never seen this. Yeah, well, you haven't missed anything. <laughs> uh, you say that about everything, don't you? Like, um, I'm gonna go track that down. Um, can can we go back? Because I, I want you breeze through it, and it's one of my favorite movies of all time. In fact, I even um, so proud. One of my dear friends, Dan Waters, and I bonded over the fact that you know I have a gigantic Apocalypse Now poster on my wall that uh, I'm very proud of. I should have behind me. It would boggle your mind. It's one of the greatest movies ever made. But you asked me what the best movie that came out in 1979 was, and we will both tell you without blinking, it's Hair. Hair is, I love Hair so much. I, I want you to go back for a minute and talk a little bit. Like, did you, where, where did you first see it? So, again, Hair, again, every, you know, all of my kind of experiences getting into musicals had to do with my high school career, really being involved with theater in the theater department, where it would start with a theater show going up, and then it would go to me finding the movie and researching the movie and then being my finding myself drawn more to the movie. Like I said, I was not a fan of the play itself. Yeah, I like yeah. The play. But I remember some of the songs. I was like, can we say this? Like, are these seem defensive? Like, um, whether it be the song Sodomy or the, the song that would never in a million years be okay for a high school thing to sing now, which is the, the, the song, the black, the black actor and the thing sings, but you couldn't yeah. say any of that now. None yeah. of that. Um, so I remember the tabooness of it. Then you have the things like the orgy and all of this, but the, you know, the movie to me is one of those things that I, I love it due to, and all the movies that I'm going to, to list have an absurdist quality to them. But, you know, the, I remember watching the movie for the first time and the song, uh, black boys are so pretty came on the other song. And it was just so over the top and so ridiculous and then cut to a very serious uh, sodomy. When they did sodomy in the movie, I was like, this is my new favorite movie. And it became a movie that I would show friends when they came over. I would literally be like, you got to see this. Yeah. And um, while they were all watching uh, action films and the diehards, I was still back watching Tommy and Hair and showing these insane things. And it just, the style spoke to me. That it took, to me, it took massive risks with awesome fucking music. And I love the music of Hair. Hair it's one of my favorite soundtracks. Well, I gotta say, somehow the 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 movie soundtrack does the same thing that the movie does to me, because the, with the exception of a couple of obvious songs like like um, um, Jesus Christ, I'm, I'm I'm blanking, Let the Sun Shine In and stuff like that. Yeah. Most of the most of the songs are sound okay on the Broadway cast recording, but in the movie they just are amazing. They just found the perfect pitch and delivering whatever it is, and the play itself is such a sort of non-narrative mishmash of hippie gibberish that the work they did fitting an actual story into that, that's great with fully fleshed out character. I mean, it's an amazing achievement to me as a film. Um, and it's so moving by the end. Oh, look at one of the things that I also like about that era is look at the filmmakers um, and the directors who went and made these kind of ballsy rock operas. Mm -hmm. Norman Juice and Milos Foreman, uh, Ken Russell, I mean, you have these huge powerhouse filmmakers doing these insane kind of crazy musicals, but in the seventies, those were very popular musicals. So I don't think that was such a risk now. Now looking at them in 2020, if you look at them, but they were huge. I mean, they were all huge musicals at the time. Well, it wasn't so much a risk, but it was just, it was just the fact that you could actually turn that into a compelling story for, for an audience is amazing. And then stuff like Twyla Tharp choreography, you know, the choreography of the horses, which uh, <laughs> it's just, it's bonkers. It's beautiful. Well, I made a list when I started making, when I started doing these 
these musicals, um, I made a list of all the actors that I wanted to work with, and they, they all spawn from the movies I'm, I'm about to list now. Um, but I, I went out to treat Williams because, uh, again, I thought he was, I just thought he was awesome. Yeah. He was shooting a TV show at the time and it didn't work. Um, but, you know, I wanted, I wanted to cast in Devil's Carnival the one actor from each of these musicals that inspired me. And I got, I mean, I got there a lot. I got, I got Ted Neely. I got uh, uh, Brad from Rocky Horror. I got, and I got all these amazing, I mean, Barry Boswick. I was so excited. I got all these people. I uh, was unable to get Treat Williams. Uh. Uh, I, I did try. I did try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Um, so going, continuing in the era of 70s musicals that kind of inspired me, uh, Phantom of the Paradise. 20th Century Fox presents Phantom of the Paradise, a gothic horror story. What was that? A beautiful love story. A cinematic odyssey through the rock universe. From Greece to glitter and beyond. That that is such a you know to, to me when I watched it, it was a cool, crazy, risk-taking movie. Uh, that again, still today, I will put on once a year, twice a year. Uh, you know, not only from the music, but the production design and just the way it looks and the way that it was shot. I mean, it's it's the Palmer. So uh, I was uh, another another huge inspiration for me as a filmmaker. Yeah, that's an amazing one. I, I it was such an odd film too because it wasn't or when it came out. I mean, I was a kid. It wasn't Jesus Christ Superstar. It wasn't hair. It wasn't something based on a thing you had seen before. It wasn't Tommy. It's it's. Uh, it also know. wasn't particularly popular. No, it's it's, no. Cult. it's, the, it's through the cultum. It's the, the cult fandom has kind of made it and turned it into I think what it is. Uh, but when you're doing movies like Jesus Christ Superstar, Tommy, you're basing it on an album, um, yeah. whether it be the, you know the Brown album, Jesus Christ Superstar, or the Who's. You have an album and you have a built-in fan base coming into the movie. So, you know, you know the music. So when I, when, it, when I would see these movies, I knew them from the album. And so I, like, for example, a movie like Rent, which was more my when I was in high school coming out. When the movie comes out, I know every song already because it's, it's a very popular thing. And, and uh, you know, I don't, the ones that have, I think, stuck around are ones that you come in with the fandom already there. Um, but, uh, yeah, and it's, it's, it's crazy that, when I was trying to make a list of the, the, I didn't mean to make them all from the seventies. It just seems to me that that seventies and the early eighties are where all of those type of films just all seem to hit one after another, after another, those type of musicals. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there, there's a few from the sixties, I guess, that kind of come close. But as you're what, saying, like, what, what, what would be a sixties musical? that you? Uh, not quite. I don't know. I mean, would wild in the streets sort of count a little bit? It's not really a musical. Not really a musical. I think, I think Hard, Hard Day's Night is more of a musical than Wild on the Streets. 
Yeah, that's true. That is true. Um, but but it, do, it does feel like a kind of there's a residual 60s quality to all those films in some strange way. Well, I mean, I would consider, and again, there's, there's a conversation about, I guess, rock opera versus musical versus movie that has musical numbers in it. But, yeah. you know, as a kid growing up, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. How does it make you feel to be the first golden ticket finder? I'm going Mike, the country wants to hear from you. The world is waiting. Can't you shut up? I'm busy. You're a rotten, mean father. You never give me anything I want. And I won't go to school till I have it. Violet. Call it, mother. Open it, Charlie. Let's see that golden ticket. Wouldn't that be fantastic? It's not fair to raise his hopes. Never mind. Go on, open it, Charlie. I want to see that gold. Stop it, Dad. I've got the same chance as anybody else, haven't I? I never dreamed that I would climb over the moon in ecstasy, but nevertheless, it's there that I'm shortly about to be. Because I've got a golden ticket. I've got a golden chance to make my way. And with a golden ticket, it's a golden day. I think for a couple of different reasons, that, that movie really stuck with me. Um, it had haunting imagery in it, and it had these these things that that you know are terrifying uh, from the tunnel sequence. But it also had these weird, um, very singalongable songs that uh, that you know I found myself as a kid just keep singing, whether it be the Loompa song or whatever. So you know I I do consider that uh, as another musical that inspired me. Um, that it, that had this childlike wonder with this really really dark undertone to it as well. Yeah, it's a very strange film, and uh, Gene Wilder is is irreplaceable. I mean, his his performance is uh, it's one of the most amazing performances I've ever seen. He's supposed to be he's supposed to be a lovable guy, and he's he's really nuts. And uh, and the uh, the whole um, Middle Europe thing with everybody sleeping in the same beds, and yeah. Uh, oh yeah, and it's so Germanic, and uh, it's it's really a, a very interesting movie. Well, and that's that's the thing is that as I show, as I try to show my son films that I remember, you know, as for me as a kid, they, they parts of them seem inappropriate. Like I showed him, um, I showed him Wizard of Oz recently, and um, there are some things in there that that I don't think they mean to be dark, but are but are terrifying. And the same thing when I showed him, I showed him Willy Wonka a few months back, um, and there are some things in there that are that are nightmare inducing. Yeah, yeah, but kids love that. I mean, look at the Disney cartoons. I mean, they, yeah. they, it's 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 part of the it's part of what appeals to kids. Kids like to be scared safely. You know? Yeah, exactly. Um, but those damn monkeys, man, they are terrifying. Oh, look at the scarecrow mask. If you go back and look at look at the sca- I mean, there there is some terrifying. There is there's some terrifying things in that film. Yeah. Um, you know, this is a weird one, and it's, I'll, I'll tell you, this, this movie has a personal thing for me. So I grew up in Kansas, and my mother was a huge, huge Neil Diamond fan. And the first concert that I ever attended as a kid was Neil Diamond. Um, and I've probably been to four Neil Diamond concerts over um, in my childhood. And so when Jazz Singer came out, when it came out on VHS, I remember that was a big deal for my parents. Like, we had to watch Jazz Singer, we had to watch Jazz Singer. In concert, he is played to sold-out crowds wherever he has appeared. On record, he has sold more than 50 million copies. As a composer, he has written songs recorded by virtually every major star. 
And now, he brings his unique talents to the motion picture screen. In his first starring role, Neil Diamond is the jazz singer. The classic story of a man torn between family. Pop, I have things inside of me. I have to express them. I have my music. I have my life, my feelings. And fame. I just don't want to go through life thinking I could have been. You know, I, I think that was another movie that I remember watching again and again that unlike the other movies that were absurd, that had this kind of absurd, um, flamboyant kind of thing, um, Jazz Singer was very serious, very melodramatic uh, throughout it, but it used music in a way that I knew those songs. So those were songs that I was already aware of. And so I think when those songs came in, they spoke to me as a kid more because I knew them from my parents. I knew them from seeing them in concert. So that was a movie that is a weird movie, but as a child, like just responded, I responded to, and I think it had to do with the emotional connection I had to my mother, who was a huge Neil Diamond fan, and me seeing Neil Diamond in concert numerous times. Um, Sorry, so were, were the songs, I apologize, I've never seen it, I'm not the, the Neil Diamond guy, were the songs like well-known Neil Diamond songs? Yeah, 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 they are. Um, I mean, yeah. had, they, had they been before the film came out? I don't know, but when I saw it, I mean, that movie was made in 1980. It was 1980 when it came out. Um, I was one. So when I saw it on VHS, it would have been years later. Got it. So you'd grown up. I'd already been uh, brought into the Neil Diamond cult. Fun side story about Neil Diamond. He was one of the people that I tried to involve early on in Repo as being one of these inspirations of me loving musicals. And it was so funny. This is a funny pass of how I got passed on it. Um, there was a scene in Repo that involved this character doing a line of cocaine on the back of a hooker's back. And he does this big line of cocaine and he says, I started this opera shit and this is the motherfucking thanks I get. And then he breaks out into a song. Neil Diamond's breath <laughs> responded back. Neil Diamond appreciated the read and the music, but he will not be doing cocaine on the back of anyone's back. <laughs> and I was like, that is the At most- At least not on camera. Well, <laughs> Paul Servino ended up uh, being cast in that role. And mm. ironically, Paul Servino said yes to the movie, but then when he came to set, he would not do it either. So that got, <laughs> that ended up getting cut out of the movie. Uh, but Neil Diamond also uh, said no to doing that. Um, so another one that's more of a recent, I want to say recent, in the last 10 or 15 years, but I probably watched 200 times, um, is The Forbidden Zone. Just keep saying to yourself, it's only a movie. It's only a movie. It's only a movie that will have you living in the sixth dimension, moving in the wrong direction. A new fantasy musical comedy. Forbidden zone. Yeah, and you want to talk about you know absurdity. It, it was probably in some respects the biggest inspiration in making Repo and The Devil's Carnival, and I'll tell you why. Is Richard Elfman's production design was so cheap and so nothing. It was paper with marker it looked like around it and very 2D sets. Um when we started making the, the musicals that I did, we said, instead of trying to pretend that we have money that we don't have the budget to, let's lean in the fact that we don't have money. 
Let's lean into the fact and make it part of the production design. Let's make that part of the character and charm of the movie. And I love Forbidden Zone. First off, I, I love the music. I mean, the, 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 the music in that movie is, is one of my favorite soundtracks because it is so weird and fever dreamish. Um, I loved how cheap everything looked from the, the over-the-top makeup on people um, to, and I might be making this story up, but I was listening to a commentary. Maybe Richard told me this himself, but there, there is a scene in, in the movie where the, I'm trying to think of the woman's name. Um, she, played the, she played the queen in it. Uh, Susan Terrell. Susan Terrell. Yeah, Her boob pops out in the middle of a take mm-hmm. and they leave it out and they never reshot it. And so it, it just is just out there and you're just like, what, what, what is happening right now? Um, but that, that to me is probably, I would say a, a movie that um, affected me more from a filmmaking standpoint because they obviously had no budget to make the movie, but the fact that they leaned into that and it became this cult classic, this very culty movie showed that you can make these kind of weird, crazy musical endeavors uh, without having to rely on the big, you know, the big budget production design or something like Tommy would have. Um, so uh, that, is, that is one of my, forget music, favorite musicals, Forbidden Zone is one of my favorite movies. Uh, I know that's a weird thing to say, but just the balls to make that and how crazy it is. I mean, there's a three minute scene of the, what are they called? The Beam Bam guys that are, that, mm-hmm. they're, they're, they, they, that is just so fucking bizarre. Uh, I can't take my eyes off it. So it's like a living art piece. Like I watched that again. It's, it's one of those movies that again, I'll watch a ton and show it to people. And you just, you, you sit, but unlike the Apple, which I can't handle the music, like I love yeah. it. That's the sort of interesting thing about the Apple is, is that even the music isn't good. <laughs> no, I'm not sure if there's anything good. I mean, do you, can you say anything good about the Apple? Is there anything yeah, I love good? it. I think it's a, it's a masterpiece. It's just, uh, <laughs> it's in focus for the most part. It's in focus. It's, uh, I don't know. For me, it's like, there's just a moment where that guy, uh, uh, who's one credit it is, it's, standing in the rain with his back against the wall singing i'm standing in the rain with my back against the wall that is um one of my favorite things yeah but um no i i haven't seen forbidden zone in a long time susan terrell was actually a friend of mine uh for for quite a while i worked with her in the movie on a movie a long time ago we got to be pretty pretty tight she's so she's amazing Uh, yeah I had heard he he had talked for years about doing a sequel to Forbidden Zone, and I don't think I've ever been more excited about a sequel to a movie uh, <laughs> that never ended up happening. But um, I will be the first one in line to see that movie when it does, because Richard Elfman is batshit insane in the most best possible. I, I hired Richard Elfman and his band um, to play at this immersive event that I did a, a year ago, where it was it was his band, and uh, you know if you know Richard Elfman, he loves to be in his underwear, and so this this event is very serious, very intense. And then you walk into this room and there's Richard Elfman on bongo with like six other people. And I was just like, I, I, it was just such a weird, just visual to see every day going in set and seeing him there with his bongos and his drum and his hat. Um, <laughs> so the, the next ones I'm going to say that I have a couple more that some of them are really weird and, and not traditional musicals, but, but musicals that to me just had an impact uh, on me. Mm-hmm. Um, Eddie and the Cruisers. No sense in ever playing music again, sir. It was 18 years ago that a turquoise Chevy convertible went off the Raritan Bridge. Its driver was Eddie Wilson of Eddie and the Cruisers. His body was never found. 
You ever wonder what it might have been like if he was still around? I used to wonder. It ate me up. And some nights it's like Eddie's still alive. Yet he died, the cruisers died with him. There was magic in the night. I would argue that's not a person. Well, it's that's not it's not in the same style as something like Phantom of the Paradise or Tommy. Yeah, yeah. It's just it's it's the music, it's the rock and roll, it is the coolness of Michael Perry. It is the it is just it was it. I remember seeing that with my dad in the theater, and it was just this awesome. I think I think he took me to a drive-in because it was after the movie came out. And uh, they were, I remember the discussion was, I old enough to see it? Uh, mm-hmm. And I just remember seeing it, and then I remember getting the cassette tape of that after the fact. And unlike, again, a movie like Tommy or Jesus Christ or any of these others, Hair, it, it's, it's basically just a band. And it's not any of them singing their own song. But it was something that I just loved the music. Um, and even today, when you hear, when you hear that music, it's, it's cool. And so that was... On just, the dark side. On the dark side, yeah. The Beaver um, Brown band. Yes. Yes. The next one I'm excited about to see if either of you guys have seen, and I'm guessing you have, but when I saw it the first time, it was when Amoeba was still, uh, you know, I, was, I went to Amoeba. I was walking through the cult section, and uh, I bought it not knowing it was a musical. And then I was so excited that I found this movie, and it became my go-to movie for years to show people when they came to my house, which was the first nudie musical. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, <laughs> Cindy Williams. Cindy, I was going to say, Cindy Williams, yes. So, yeah, that... Uh, not nude, I should say. No, she's one of the few not nude people in the movie. Yeah. Um, but, you know, for those that have not seen it, um, the, a notable cameo by uh, Ron Howard. Um, That's right. It, it, is, um, it is so... It's not a good movie at, at all, but there are dancing dildos. There are... Can't beat uh, that. There are dancing dildos. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there, are, there are big production numbers of just the most absurd sexual things you've ever seen, but done in a very playful way. It was never done in like a gratuitous, gratuitous thing. But yeah, I mean, there, there are dance numbers of nude men, and nude women, and it's, it's from a spectacle standpoint. I was very excited to have uh, found that movie that I was never, I was never aware of. Uh, well, it's like a weird radar. period in like the early seventies where. It was like, oh, we can show boobies. And they made these weirdly sexless movies about nudity and, and sex. Wasn't it? Wait a minute. As, as, as Roger Corman used to call it, reproduction value. Yeah, sure. I don't know. For, don't ask me why. I recently saw for the first time Chatterbox, which. Oh, Chatterbox. A movie, yes. Candy Rousen. Candy Rousen, who goes above and beyond in terms of taking the material seriously. But it's, you know, it's a song about it, or it's a movie about a woman with a. Talking vagina. That, well, and there's also a French movie called Pussy Talk that has the same plot. Herschel Gordon Lewis did a movie before that. What was it? I'm trying to think of the name of it. But he did a he did a movie as well that was just an absurd kind of nudist musical thing. Goldilocks and the Bear. I'm trying to think of the name of it now. Goldilocks and the Three Bears. B A R E. Yeah, yeah, that was it. It was a nudist camp and people doing some singing in it, but. Um, I, I had heard of that. I'd never heard of the first nudie musical. So, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things. It's like when you find a new episode of Seinfeld, you didn't know it existed. Like that. <laughs> I, 
So when I not found, quite, but <laughs> well, you know, I pride myself on the on on these musicals from that era, and it right. was one that I've never heard of, and so I was very I was very excited to discover it. Um, well, you may you may want to check out Chatterbox then because it's got some musical numbers. Well, yes, it does. Yeah, she, she's a trooper, that kid. Yeah, she's a. I don't. Does she? She doesn't. Does she sing at all? She does sing. She's got a big dance number. Yeah, but you no, know, it's mostly her. Um, her uh, nether regions are doing the singing. Oh, uh, that's right. She doesn't. Do camera, I don't voice. think she does any right. actual. Wait a minute. Ha, what? From nineteen seventy-seven. There we are. There you go. With Professor Irwin Corey. Yeah. Uh, and they, they get these respectable people to be in these films, and they are. They're you know you're a horny teenager, and you're like, oh my god, this is going to be great. And then somehow it's it's just utterly there's just utterly sexless. <laughs> I, I think why you know I'll end it with one that again it's it's a I don't know I still and maybe I need therapy to understand why that era and those type of movies. Always, That's why we're here, Darren. I know, um, but cabaret. <laughs> scene of cabaret where you're in this um you know this dark seedy environment with these over-the-top theatrical makeup and this very sultry music um anytime i see a movie with a musical in it and the music speaks to me i just want to be there i want to be like i wanted to be on the set of jesus christ superstar i wanted to be when elton john was doing pinball wizard and tom one of those things um because halloween is my favorite time of year not not only for the horror movies and uh, the horror movie releases in the haunted house, but it's to dress up. And I think that mm-hmm. the, the majority of these movie musicals that I love, you're, you're seeing the, just the craziest flamboyant costumes and, and over the top makeup. And it's so theatrical um, that uh, again, you look at Anne Margaret being covered in beans. It's so just crazy um, that it, it's, it just transports me. Um, so there are elements of cabaret that do that as well. That when you watch that and you're in that you're in the club, that I'm just like, I want to go there. I want to be there. Um, so I don't know. Just that that era to me, as a as a musical lover, was my yeah. favorite era of musical films. Yeah, right. it's an interesting time. It's an interesting time. Uh, Which will never appear again. Yeah, I, I can't see any of those movies getting made today, even considered. No. But we have them. Yeah. Yeah. And thanks to and thanks to Darren, a lot of I've people know about things they didn't know about. I've been able to squeeze through three of them uh, into the, and you know it was so. I remember the first time that I. Uh, That's true. By the way, I should probably. I, what, I, what I can't see is I, I've just I've, I've gotten lost in this reverie of like I think I want to make a documentary about I'm going to go around to all the studios and pitch some bonkers musical and just film the responses of people oh, as you. I, I'll tell you. Sell a studio I, I, on it. I lived through that, and I was going to say that I remember one of my favorite, and my favorite, I mean not favorite, memories I've ever had as a filmmaker is this first screening of Repo the Genetic Opera with all the execs at Lionsgate. 
there was a look of such bewilderment and like I farted in each one of their faces. And there was, there was, there was like um, sadness, anger, and just um, depression. And I remember, I remember we, we did a test screening um, in Chatsworth or wherever you do test screenings. And uh, they tested the movie with a click track. So when the movie was tested, there was no music in it. It was literally just the click track of the people singing. And I begged them, please don't screen it. Please don't screen it. Wait till the music's done. And so there was like 500 visual effects shots, tons of green screen everywhere in that movie. But they screened it with all green screen and the, the click track. So the audience, <laughs> those that don't know, and I'm sure if you're listening to this podcast, you, you, movies are tested. And uh, you want to get good test scores because those 300 people watching your movie will determine the fate of your movie, a lot of, a lot of things. I remember sitting in the back of... Um, the auditorium, watching the audience with just this look of, of, of they, like I betrayed them. Like there was just a look of betrayal on their face. And uh, I, I kept looking over at, at John Feltheimer and Joe Drake and these, these big wigs at, these big wigs at Lionsgate. And um, I just saw, I think they were sleeping at one point. I think one of them might have fallen asleep. But I remember when the things ended and all the test results are being handed in. And, and the test results are totally, and you get like a number, like what percentage of the audience would recommend this to a movie? I believe if I'm not mistaken, I'm sure this exists somewhere in the vault, we tested like four, 4%. Four percent <laughs> of people wanted to see this movie. And uh, when, when, when people were walking out of the audience, I think at this point I'm drunk. I think I was drinking the entire time. No one would make eye contact with me. Everyone would just look down and just shake their head and walk away. And uh, I, I remember walking to the parking lot and, uh, I, I was quasi drunk, quasi crying. And uh, I was just like, that, that's it. No one's ever going to see this movie. It's, it's uh, my, my homage to the 70s musicals that I grew up on. It's dead. Uh, we finished the movie. We put the green screen. We replaced it. We added the music to it. And uh, it found a cult audience. So, uh, yeah, and, and it would make, and I mean this is the best way possible, a worthy feature in a double feature with most of the movies we've discussed today. That's true. But, uh, but I, I think the practice of, of previewing unfinished movies uh, is bonkers. so suicidally stupid. Well, I, I, we've all been there, you know. It, it's not done. It's the, there's, the music isn't in there. The, there's, there's big blank spaces where the special effects are supposed to be. I, 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 I previewed an animated movie with no animation. And, they, and, then, they, and then they still uh, look at these uh, numbers and they go, well, well see, see what the numbers say? The numbers don't mean anything. These people are completely <laughs> confused about what the fuck they're doing and seeing. Um, anyway. I'll tell you, like, the thing, about, the thing about that which kills me is, is that when you sit into an edit room, you put together your director's cut, and producers, well, every, every single time, 10 times out, of, 10 times out of 10, they'll say, can we see it early? We want to see it. We're, of course we're, they do. We, oh, we, come on, just us. We won't, show, we won't tell not, anybody. And they'll say, don't worry, we can see past it. We understand that it's not color corrected. We, and they can't, because if mm-hmm. I can't understand what it's going to be, there is no way a person that's read the script twice maybe watch dailies once is going to understand what it's going to sound like with the sound design, the footsteps and the sound of crunching bones or ripping skin or all of that. And inevitably you only get one chance to impress someone and they see it and they're like, we're fucked. And they I know. And then, and whatever impression you make, that's, that's the movie for the rest of time. That's, that's, that's what they're going to think of that movie. No matter what you do to it is what they thought the first time they saw it. Well, can I, can I give you a, a quick, a quick Bob Weinstein story uh, that, that uh, so after Saw 2 comes out. Trigger warning. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, well, when Saw 2 comes out, um, I end up with a, with a deal at, at uh, Dimension 
And they, this was during around the time the writer's strike was happening. And so they knew that they paid me this money and they had to use me for something, but they were unable to get a movie up. And I had like, I was attached at that time to scanners with uh, David Gore, I was writing it, but time was rapidly running out. And so um, Bob Weinstein calls my house. He's very abrasive and rude. And he's just like, I'm sitting not like him. Oh, I know. <laughs> he's like, I'm, I'm sending you a movie. I'm sending you a movie. I need your help. I need your notes on it. And he sends me a movie and it was, it was not great. It was not great. And I sent him my notes and I said, this is what I think about the movie. And, and he goes, I'm coming to Los Angeles in three days. I need to meet you. And he's like, and bring your editor. I want to talk to him. So I have to go to this hotel and it, 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 the whole experience was just surreal. Cause it was like, I think it might've been the first time I met him in person. And uh, I go there and he was like, I want to talk about your notes. I want to talk about this movie. And so as I start talking, he stands up. I think he's wearing like a track suit and all these like guys in suits are following him. And he's, he's walking. He's like, come on, Bowser, quick headshot, headshot. And we're leaving the Peninsula Hotel or whatever hotel it was. And we're walking across the street and he's still talking to me and my editor. And we, we're all of a sudden we enter an office building. And he's still talking. He doesn't stop talking. Was, the whole thing was like surreal because there's all these people walking behind him. We get into an elevator and we go up an elevator and we're walking as like we're walking through a production company. And we walk to a hallway and to a door. And he opens the door and he says, I'm going to say, he goes, Mr. X, you're out, Bowsman, you're in, fix it. And he fired the director and editor right then and there and had myself and my editor, Kevin Groyer, come in to try to fix this movie. And I didn't know this was happening. I had no idea that it was about to happen. And I'm, I'm like 25 years old. I think I was 25 at the time. And this was a, a very big editor, you guys know. And it was a very big director. And I'm like, I, I'm just, I don't know what to do. So I'm there for about four weeks, kind of under the thumb of, of this thing I have to do, which is fix this movie. And um, after four weeks of me sending edits back and Bob is yelling at me, this is wrong. I don't like this. This is wrong. I go through the attic of the Abbott and I find the director's cut. And I go through and I, I click on the director's cut and I watch it. And it was fucking awesome. It was everything <laughs> that he fucking wanted. It was everything that he wanted. And uh, I, I remember calling him up and I was like, hey, uh, Bob, I, I, oh no, we, we, we added some sound effects to it. We actually, Kevin went in and added some sound design and did, did a little color correction to it. And it was awesome. And I remember that we called him up and we said, hey, we, we, we actually think we found the version of the movie you're looking for. And I remember we sent him the director's cut and he fired me that day. He's like, you don't know what you're fucking talking about. But it was exactly what we're talking about. He saw an early cut of the movie Right. It didn't have the sound and it did not have the, the thing and just completely tuned out, just, just, just tuned out of the thing. And that's what testing process is. A lot of times we put it in front of the thing is that if a movie is not finished, you could get, you could get beaten up. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a hard thing. And they, and they never learn. They just do it over and over and over. <sighs> yeah. But luckily they're not doing it right now because none of us are working. That's right. <laughs> Sitting around talking to each other on podcasts. Um, Darren. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Darren. Down these musical journeys. This is uh, it's gonna be a fun one to edit. You yeah, that. you're gonna have some good, you're gonna have some good songs in there you can throw in. Absolutely. And what, song, and what song will you pick from each musical? That's the question. Because that is the question. You'll have to listen to find I'm out. I'm gonna have to listen to find out what uh, what jams you decided to put in there. Uh, and um, so we're gonna we're gonna say uh, goodbye to Darren yes. and we're gonna say stop recording, and then he's gonna tell us who the filmmaker was. <laughs> Our show was recorded from several well-stocked bunkers. We can't wait to get back to beautiful downtown Burbank. 
We're the official podcast of TrailersFromHell.com, the best damn movie website there is. Our engineer is the composer Don Barrett, who also transmogrified, produced, and created our theme song. This is Josh Olson for the Movies That Made. Stay safe out there, folks. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.